back, everybody. This is Christy and Jeffrey, and this is Uptown yeah. Drama. Do, 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 do. Okay, uh, enough joviality. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so we're still at home. We're still recording from our own separate places. This is uh, still not. Uh, did I just use two double negatives? I don't know. I don't know anymore. Nothing means anything anymore. Um, Jeffrey and I usually walk around uptown and talk to people in our community and just have a conversation about what's going on at the theater. And uh, we can't do that right now, as you all know, because we're still uh, trying to maintain social distance and stay safe. But we've been doing a thing where we have guests uh, who have a history with Theater 3 and who work with Theater 3 often come in and talk about... Um, their experience at Theater 3 and what they're up to and, and what they remember and um, all that jazz. And today uh, we have a really special guest and that is, do you want to introduce our guest, Jeffrey? Well, of course, the famous Jonathan Norton, uh, a Yay! brilliant playwright based here, but is um, getting such great attention nationwide. Uh, and so we couldn't be happier to have him on the show today. Thanks for being here, Jonathan. So excited. Thank y'all for having me. And I love the show. So I am uh, really excited to finally have a chance to be on it. Jeffrey, we have one listener. <laughs> <laughs> we have our fan. <laughs> oh, we're on our way to syndication. I can feel it. Yes. So I have lots of questions, Jonathan, but the, the first one I want to ask is how did you start with Theater 3? Like how, how did Theater 3 um, get on your radar or like what is your origin story with Theater 3? Uh, my origin story with Theater 3 starts when I was 15 years old. Uh, it was a production of, of Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Uh, that is actually also part of the infamous Dicks on a Wall. <laughs> I love this story. The Dicks on the Wall. So like my, I guess my first real true impression of theater <laughs> is Dicks on a Wall. And that was it. And so what, what happened was that like, um, it was uh, the evening that I came uh, for the auditions. And, you know, I grew up in Pleasant Grove and, and me and my folks, like, we, North Dallas, anything, like, you know, north of downtown was, like, foreign territory to us or whatever. So uh, I was with my dad and we, we got lost trying to find a place and we almost turned around and almost went home and I was begging him, like, no, please, this is... <laughs> please don't give up on me, whatever. And so finally, uh, I said, we're going to find it, we're going to find it, we're going to get there, we get there, and we're going down the, the, the stairs to uh, the lounge, because like, back in the day, you know, they have a lounge, and then back in the day, the theater too was like the, the rehearsal hall or what have you, and so as we're going uh, down the stairs, there was this, this art exhibit, uh, that apparently was supposed to be themed to the show that was running on the main stage. And basically the art exhibit was just like um, collages from gay porn magazines. And so a lot of dicks on a wall. My dad is walking down and he's looking at, at, at this exhibit and it's like... And, and of course, I'm like, Dad, please don't give up. This is my dream. It'll be okay. You know what I mean? And so, my, my first impression of theater theory has always been the theater with dicks on the wall. That's incredible. But th that story has like a continuation because, I mean, Jeffrey knew this story. Yeah. About about your introduction to theater three and how you, your first audition was dicks on a wall, <laughs> and like re I think recently there must have been some kind of controversy or something about the content on our main stage, and uh, Jeffrey I think Jeffrey please correct me if I'm wrong Jeffrey but Jeffrey said something kind of publicly it's like we've yeah. always been the theater with dicks on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> What was that about, Jeffrey? Tell us the story. 
I oh, I have such a terrible memory. I can't. I mean, I think it was Jonathan and I talking about cinched and strap. Is that right, Jonathan? Is that how this came yeah. up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The show we closed last season with cinched and strapped, or the two shows by Selena Fillinger, um, definitely. And it seems so small now from just what we're living in at the moment. But it pressed, it pushed people's buttons because it did have to deal. Um, it, it dealt with women's rights and reproductive rights. And that, so I shouldn't say it was small. Just, you know what I mean? No, That's yeah. not a small issue, but it, it, it just, just like, it seems like a million years ago. Yeah. And, um, and it also people, seems like a no brainer. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. I know. I know. And it. So it really, of course, it upset the people you would think it would upset. Um, and it, this it, this story came, Jonathan and I talking. Yeah. <laughs> that. It's always, yeah. Because I'm always frustrated when people get upset by mm-hmm. our programming. And you look at the history of Theater 3 and we're not doing anything differently. Because there have always been dicks on the wall. <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, I feel like, this, you know, and it's almost tame compared to the first stuff that Norma Young was doing, like when she first started the theater. And it's it's not tame, but compared to the time that the times that Norma was was living in and started the theater, and the kind of stuff that she had, quite frankly, the balls to put on stage for the people she was putting it on stage for, and saying, "This is what we're doing. Too bad." Um, the stuff i mean two girls kissing seems kind of like really that's the thing that's gonna upset you right, right. so you know and, and then also just the other history of Atta fugard and and august wilson and and i think the other three did for colored girls twice I yeah think. yeah twice kind of, yeah yeah, yeah I, mean, I think within i think the first time was within a year of it yeah. of it first being produced you know mm-hmm. I, I, they jumped on on it pretty quickly if i recall so you so that was your first experience mm-hmm. and did did you continue to have uh other working experiences at theater three and like who are the people that you remember the most or what was your experience like uh i did not have other working experiences after that i guess because i was so young but i did uh, my my myself and my parents we continued to to visit the theater to see shows and and talk to Jack afterwards or or Larry afterwards. Um, Larry O'Dreyer was in Joe Turner's Coming On. Uh, he, he played he played uh, Rutherford Selig, the bounty hunter. Bounty hunter. Like people never want to talk him what he is, but he's a bounty hunter. That's what yes. he is. Um, and so he played with the Fitzgerald, the bounty hunter. And so I got to work really closely uh, with Larry and um, who else is it? Vicky Washington was in was in that as well. Um, and I'm trying to think of if there are other. Uh, Everyone else that I can think of is like people are probably not really uh, in the city or working here now at the moment. There is an actor who's in the Bay Area now, Aldo Billingsley. Mm-hmm. He was oh, and Nika Hartman, who was of course in Solstice and Fast and Strange. Yeah. Um, she was in it as well. Wow. Did, well, uh, and what? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Did, speaking of of. Uh, yeah, gosh, how how old was Nika too? She was, she's like maybe thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, we were kids. Speaking of Larry, didn't you do a like a summer show with Larry where he asked you to write? Yeah. Okay, so he asked me. So this is a really cool story because it's like basically, I suppose if if I had to like pinpoint like one person who was like, oh yeah, I I kind of write plays maybe because of this one person, it would likely be Larry, because I think that I believe that he was just trying to get me out of everyone's hair. (laughs) (laughs) By like sending me off somewhere to write a play. Because like I I got into this um I got into this habit like once What's the what's the run began and in matinees and, and doing stuff on the weekends where I would sit backstage and 
I, I just started writing like monologues and like short scenes. And then I would recruit uh, different actors in the show, like to just sit there and like read my stuff backstage to me. And I think eventually people just got annoyed with it. And so <laughs> Larry was like, hey, look, kid, uh, just, just here's an idea. Go write this and just like, don't come back until you finish it, okay? And I, I think that was part of it. But also, it was just really cool and being really encouraging. Um, and it was it was weird because it was a weird, um, uh, obviously weird, crazy, quirky, interesting person. But I also think he was he seemed to be really really good with kids and young people. Um, and I just remember. Uh, Nika, at the time, she was a grinder, and she was doing one of those cheesy, like, 1940 radio show things or whatever, and she had this song, uh, that song, Miss Otis Regrets, you know, Miss Otis Regrets. Yeah. Able to lunch. And so she would always come backstage, and uh, uh, she would always be in the green room with Larry, and they would sing Miss Otis Regrets together, which is really cute. <laughs> they had all routines and everything. And that was kind of the thing. Uh, and what else? The one thing I remember that he did uh, is my, I have two big Larry memories. One was um, he fell asleep on stage. Like for real? <laughs> I'm not making this up. He fell asleep on stage. Um, the stage manager, uh, Terry Tittle-Hallman, she used to uh, let me go up, hang out in the booth with her and like just watch her call the show and whatever. Uh, and so one evening I was, I was in the booth and it was like right at the end, toward the end of the show. And she, she looks at me and she goes, do you see that? Like, you know, and I'm like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I don't, I don't see anything. She goes, look at Larry, look at Larry. What? <laughs> was not out. He was just sitting in a chair. Uh, very odd. <laughs> bent over, knocked out sleep. And what was so funny about it was that the scene, it was the final scene in Joe Turner's coming off. And it's this huge moment. There's a knife and there's blood and there's like... <laughs> Screaming and yelling and like people quoting scripture and stuff. And it's like this huge thing. He is like knocked out like a light the entire time. Was yeah. it a two show day or something? <laughs> no, I don't. I, 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 maybe it was. I don't. Knocked out completely. Knocked out. And I don't recall at what point he woke up. I don't know if it was. Right. You know, at the end of the show, <laughs> I'm on the shoulder, I don't know, but like completely knocked out. But the other thing that's really funny about it is that when you consider his character, and you know, Rizvik Sivik is like, like this, this white bounty hunter, right? Um, and uh, surrounded by, you know, African-American folk. And he probably just flat out didn't care. Just like, wow. did not care what was going on, you know? Oh my God. Whatever, black people yelling and screaming and crying. No big deal, let me just sit over here in this corner and take a nap, you know? I was just, just gonna go to sleep. I just, <laughs> This doesn't concern me. I was just like, out. This place not about me. You know, I, I've been out like hunting down black people all day. I'm tired, you know. I'm tired. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It's that like they used to, because I was only in two scenes. And so they would send me next door. There's this place called the 8 0, which yeah. Oh, I, re I remember that place, yeah. And they would send me next door to get food during the show. And I always felt really bad, like I was doing something I should be something full costume or what have you. And I would go next door and like, get food for everybody. <laughs> and one day on my way to grab food, I looked and there was this um, a 
uh, a restaurant I can wear the uh, 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 crush uh, crush pack is or what was yeah there was a restaurant there and I look and just I look and there's Larry sitting on the patio in costume sitting there on the patio with a full meal in front of him, just having having lunch. Like nothing's going on and nothing's happening. Like the show is happening. Like he's just at the patio, like, on the patio having having lunch. And I'm 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 assuming he's like, oh yeah, I got 20 more minutes funny to be back on stage. God. Huh. What a man. <laughs> what a, man. What a uh, yeah. Like that. So I wonder if that still happens. You know, you always, you know, I mean, that's like, um, you know, that's like a like crazy like, I don't know, like Richard Burton shit or something. You know, like do people get? I wonder if it still happens in theater. Probably, I guess everything still happens in theater. But, jeez. Yeah, he was full on launched in the middle of the show. And but the other thing I remember is that he would. Um, uh, I, I was listening last, I don't know if it was last week's episode or one of the episodes, and there was a conversation, because I am truly a fan, uh, <laughs> and there was a the conversation about, like, the emphasis or obsession on uh, language and diction and pronunciation and, and all of that um, with Jack and, I guess, with Jack and, and Norma. And so um, Larry was, like, my coach, because especially then I'd always have trouble sometimes with my R's and W's. And so he was, he was my, my speech coach. And so every night before show, uh, uh, we'd be in the dressing room. We were in the, the dressing room downstairs and he would just go over like these drills with me. So I just had this memory, memory of, of, being in the dressing room with Larry while he's giving me like the various like voice and speech painting wow. drills and stuff. Yeah. Well, how um, I don't know. Do you do you want uh, since we've done a, we've talked about the theater history a, a good amount. Do you want to talk about how you're doing? Um. Sure. Yeah. Um. I guess like most people, it just feels like you've been hit by a bus. Yeah. Um, the most part, um, and it's uh, it's uh, I sometimes I feel like everything is uh, intensified just because of uh, it being right on the on the heels of of COVID nineteen. Yeah, and in some ways, I also think that that is or has been maybe one of the reasons why um, when we talk about this idea of uprising, like maybe there's something about how um, this has fallen right on the heels of, of COVID-19. Yeah. That, uh, that's the reason why it's, it's taking on a certain um, energy and urgency urgency that we haven't seen before and I'm so thankful for that um, but it's it is weird like from time to time I think about um, I try to run through my run through my brain and just think about um, what's what's different now than before and that's the only thing I can um, come up with um, and then of course like the conversations now uh, that are taking place um, about the American theater, incredibly necessary conversations that we haven't had that we're finally, uh, feels like we're finally beginning to have. Um, although there's another part of my brain about the whole, but the statements and what have you, the, the statements that theaters are making and, and the call for that. Um, I, was, I was saying to some friends last night, in fact, uh, whatever happened to, <laughs> Whatever happened to keep my name out of your mouth? You know, you, you, you ever hear people say that? Like, keep my name out of your mouth. You know what I mean? And so, and I, I say that just in reference to, um, I certainly feel that there are theaters that 
that should definitely be like let me hold them accountable and yes, 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 yes. But then sometimes there are theater companies that I'm like, I don't care. Like <laughs> I didn't care before, and I certainly don't care now. And I don't know there's not a single statement that you can make that would either a change how I already feel about about this company. It doesn't necessarily mean to be negative or be like, I hope your company burns in hell. It's not that kind of thing. It's just that this is not necessarily a company that in my mind, when I thought of um, companies that um, uh, that uh, connect or do work uh, that resonates um, and that has meaning for Af African-American communities and communities of color, like these are just not companies that I ever that were ever that that's ever their thing to begin with. That's never their mission to begin with. And so there are times that I'm like, why do I care that this company made a statement? And the bigger thing to me now is like the statements are important, but then it's like, how do we truly hold people accountable to like act on all of those wonderful things that they're you know saying in the statement? And then there's also the fear that you know sometimes people have a tendency, you know, once they've written that lovely statement, to feel that. That's it, and we've done. Right. Enough, you know. Um, but the bigger thing is keep my name out of your mouth. <laughs> 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 like, yeah. I to say Black Lives Matter because I know it obviously really doesn't matter to you. So right. Not, not that you're a horrible racist person, but just in the sense that it's not something that has any real, you know. Right. Like, do not, do not use my name in vain. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Why are we encouraging? I mean, sometimes I feel like we're encouraging people to do that. And I hope that's what we know if that's a good thing. But there are certainly companies that should be doing it. That we should that we have to do it. But some people, I don't care. I'm like, yeah. I feel like there are certainly, and, and it, I, I, the Zoom meeting dropped me for a little bit. So when I came back in, I was listening to you talk about all of this coming on the heels of COVID-19. And I uh, I feel like, is it because we finally, as a collective, have had time to sit back and actually like really, really look at things like in our daily life, which is wrong. Like that should not happen. That should not be the reason why we have a fire lit under our ass now. Yeah. But, but if that's what happened, that's what happened. Yeah. And now that m most of us around the country are dark, I just, you know, I read this morning that Denver Center canceled their entire season. I, um, it's so demoralizing. Wait, I, oh, I hadn't heard that yet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They announced this morning. It's kind of, but it, it is kind of an opportunity to like, all right, let's not just pay lip service to this. Right. Let's not just pay lip service to this. Now we actually have time to sit back and go, how are we not doing the work that we need to do? And right. when we come back, because we're going to come back, how are we really going to be different and, 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 and really, really, really be about equity and diversity and inclusion? Like, how right. are we really going to do that and not just have it on paper so that it looks pretty. You know right. what I mean? And this is the time to do that. Um, and I feel like a lot of companies are galvanized to right. do it now. Um, and it's sad that it took a freaking pandemic and, and the loss of yet another life right. to do it, you know? So. Yeah, I've been, we, Christy's been digging up a lot of history about Norma and um, and what they were producing uh, and the statements she made with regards to inclusion early on, it, I mean, pre-1965 even. And often people, we used the claim that Theater 3 was one of the first stages to integrate and all that is good. But what I said a few days ago is like, if we share that stuff, if we continue to share that stuff, what has to go along with it is that that is not the end of it. We are not, it has to be 
that has to be a catalyst to propel us forward to do more and not go, Hey, we're good. You know? Right. Right. You know, and I feel like a lot, I mean, I feel like a lot of theaters and I'm, you know, I've worked for, I work for many theaters and I feel like the mistake that we make is in just plain terms, right? The mistake that we make is that we curate a season that goes for all intents and purposes, here's the Mexican play, here's the black play, here's this play and here's this play. And then once those plays are done, our engagement stops, right? When we need to be like, no, no, these, these plays are for everybody and we need to continue to invite everyone to the table for everything, not just the black play or the Mexican play or the white play or whatever, right? And so that's the challenge is to like, all right, how do we, how do we begin to do that? How do we really like for real put out in the world that we are creating theater for everyone, you know, and, and, um, and make everyone feel like they are welcome. Our space is a place that where you are welcomed and you have a voice and you have a stake in what's going on. And um, I don't have an answer. It's it's difficult, but I once when when COVID nineteen hit and we started having all the, all these conversations about live streaming and Zoom theater and, and what have you, and and of course there's the camp that is uh, you know let let's explore and and see what the possibilities are and what have you, and then there's the camp that is the 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 sacred nature of gathering together in space and and live artists with in communion within within uh within audience so those two ideas happening but for me um i'm i'm really excited about the possibilities that um uh, investigating new forms of of media and storytelling, like digital storytelling, like what you guys are doing with the immigrant, just really exciting about excited about how that maybe can be a way of like creating a kind of a, a signal boost. Because I think that what happens is, I think everyone, or I to believe everyone in the field, we very much want for our work to engage with and speak to incredibly diverse audiences. That it's not like this, like you said, like this is the African-American play and this is the Latinx play and this is the whatever. Um, But I think that I always feel like the thing that we in the field often fail to, to realize is that Many times people simply just don't know even that we exist. <laughs> you know? So for as hard as as we try to diversify programming and diversify audiences, it's like, but we haven't yet figured out a way to um to reach audiences, right? And and as much as we can come up with all sorts of amazing uh, shows to program in our season, if people still lack uh, an awareness of of who we are, um, an awareness that this space exists for this purpose, um, it doesn't really matter what we're programming because people still don't know. And so how do we reach the people uh, who don't know or the people who uh, might just, have never felt comfortable or or welcome in our spaces, um, and it might be a really difficult ask. To and in fact, not only a difficult ask, but in some ways, I think um, a, a really unrealistic ask <laughs> to 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 try to lure people in um, who simply just don't 
feel comfortable because for whatever reason being, we've never done the hard work to make them feel comfortable and to make them welcome. So I always wonder how like different forms like digital storytelling and live streaming, like just getting like that that huge signal boost and finding a way to um, actually uh, maybe go into people's home, actually actually be in people's homes with them and begin to create uh, a sense of engagement and welcome there. And then maybe through what we're creating, um, that energy um, possibly maybe can be something that makes people feel like, okay, I want to, I want to experience this in person. Or, um, you know, it doesn't look like a scary place somehow anymore. Or, oh, wow, look, there are people that look like me in the audience. I can see that. Like, I'm watching this thing, and I see my community in this space. Okay, maybe I maybe let me take a shot and go and see what this thing is. And and I also think there's this fear, you know, that we have a fear that like, well, if we if we live stream it or if people have access to watch something at home, then then why would they actually want to buy tickets and come to the theater and, and see anything? But you know, I can watch Beyonce on you know uh, on YouTube. That doesn't stop me from wanting to see Beyonce when she comes to town. You know what I mean? I think about sports, like people watch, you know, Monday Night Football, but certainly if they have an opportunity to go see a game live, they're going to see a game live. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah, I I texted Christy a lot. Oh. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, oh, no, I'm listening. <laughs> I, I, I actually texted Christy last night and after we finished filming. I said, we're going to have a digital offering in our season every year. Yes. From now on, for the and because my wheels started turning in, in sort of mm-hmm. the same direction you were just talking about, and like this is, this is how we are able to reach out. This is yeah. you know, the discount code to get people to come here who might not feel like you just said comfortable coming to the space. Right. Here's how we reach out to them, and I right, and and I love how you call it a signal boost that that that. that it, that's perfect. I that mean, is perfect. Exactly what we want. Copyright. We're going to use it. No. <laughs> it's not as good as dicks on the wall, but it's almost as good as dicks on the wall. <laughs> there is, though. There is this this sense of um, elitism, right? Like I'm always I'm always telling Jeffrey. I was like this the the second the second that theater joined the ranks of the opera and the ballet and the symphony, and we became legitimized, right? Like we kind of, we, we, you know, kicked ourselves in the ass because we kind of stopped being a a populist, right? right? And if you go back, I mean, Shakespeare was populist. He was, he was about how do we get people in the place will have something in the play about dogs and we'll have something in the about whatever, whatever. the mis- a big mistake that we've made as a, an institution or whatever is that um, sometimes we make people feel dumb. Mm-hmm. We make people feel dumb and they, they people don't want to feel dumb. Yeah. Nobody wants to feel dumb. And so we make them feel like, oh, theater is this like uppity thing that you go and you do and you're dumb if you don't understand it, right? And right. We need to figure out a way to go, no, no, no. Like, you cu- you can come to any play, and if you hate it, you can freaking hate it. And but, if there's one thing that you took away from a play, that's the thing that you needed to take away from the play. And it's not, an, uh, it shouldn't be an elite art form. It shouldn't be a thing that makes you feel like, like you don't understand what's going on. It, it's... Whatever whatever's in the play that was that resonated with you, that's the thing that you needed from it, right. and that's all that matters. I, I have a story uh, about a friend, and I hope she doesn't. Uh, I hope she won't get mad at me for telling it. <laughs> but uh, my my boss, uh, she came to see Pity Candy and a Love Offering, and I was really excited because it's her first time. Uh, coming to, to see my work and uh, I, it was always weird to me because 
some other people in my office often attend uh, the arts, the performing arts, the theater, and what have you. And typically, she would not. And like, I might go see something really cool and come back into the office on Monday morning. And be like, oh my god, you have to go see this. You have to take your son. He'll love it. And and and, and she goes, oh, that's interesting, and never go. And so finally, she came to see uh, Penny Candy and a love offering. Um, and the evening that she came to see Penny Candy. Um, I could tell that she was nervous, you know, and actually she, she'll hate me for saying this. She, in the theater, she knocked over her drink and it was like this oh. and I know, it was crazy, but I could tell she was nervous and she was kind of trying to figure her way or navigate her way through the experience. She was like, oh, can I get a drink before she spilled it? Oh, can I get a drink? Oh, what do I do? Oh, I, okay. Um, and you, I could just feel like the energy, right? And it was in that moment that I just realized, oh, like, she's just not normally comfortable in this environment. And it entirely because of that whole idea of like the elitist feel that we often have to mm-hmm. our work. And what to me was so um, telling of, about that experience is that, you know, this is a woman. Um, executive leadership position at SMU, um, you know, educated uh, white woman in her, I think, mid mid fifties, I believe. So, in many ways, she's the exact demographic, <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? And she did not feel comfortable. And so, I'm like, if she doesn't feel comfortable, right? What does that say about like? What does that say? You know. Um, so that was kind of an, an aha, an aha. Right. Yeah. That means that we just need to make it a festival again with people walking around with turkey legs and beer steins. <laughs> exactly. So that every, turkey legs. everyone, free start. turkey legs. I used to work at the Black Academy of Arts and Letters. Um, and you know, uh, one of the things that they're known for, uh, they do great work, but the, one of the things they, they're known for, particularly known for like 10, 15 years ago, was that it was where a lot of the uh, African-American touring shows would come through. Right. And it was also where, um, for a good many years, it's where all the Tyler Perry shows would play. Right. And, and one of the things I always loved about the Black Academy of Arts and Letters was um, <laughs> was uh, the the concession area or the food the food offerings at Black Academy of Arts and Letters. We had nachos, turkey, <laughs> jerk chicken because we had like a, some sort of partnership with I think it was in Lanes. I think the Jamaican uh, restaurant in South Dallas, or so, we had some kind of partnership. With, they had some sort of partnership with somebody. So they had like chicken and like the what's the the patty, the 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 beef patty thing, so what have you. We had hot dogs. I mean, and that was like I know it's like a, a crazy thing, and that was a concession stand at the Black Academy of Arts and Letters. So you cannot get food inside. But people would come see a show, and before the show or intermission, they're walking around with their turkey legs and their nachos, and it was that's, awesome. That's Jeffrey. fantastic. <laughs> no, yeah, we, Jeffrey, we, Jeffrey, we have to do. Jeffrey and I have this idea where uh, we what we want to do. Should I say it, Jeffrey? Yeah, Are we trying to keep it a secret? We have to do it. Uh, we want to do like one performance of the week of for every show, um, as like Frito Pie Friday. You know, where where Jeffrey and I stand outside and serve Frito Pry before the show. And I'm like, I don't care. I will serve. I love Frito Pry. I will serve Frito Pry to people so that they can come see a show. I don't care what it is. Yeah. We want to feed everyone chili before they go sit in shop. (laughs) (laughs) Theater. Yeah. 
<laughs> I, I used to love the shows at uh, Black Academy. Uh, I oh, I only ever got to see a few, but I do remember one. I used to work for Ticketmaster way back in the day when there was Ticketmaster. And so sometimes we would get, and I'd never seen a show at Black Academy. I was like, yeah. I want to go see one. And I remember going to see a show called Whatever Happened to Black Love. Uh-huh. And it was so interesting. It was like, it would be, you know, I mean, people talk back to the theater. Right. Like people talk back to the, and I was, I was like, this is amazing. So it's like, I think after that, there was a point where I was like, oh no, you're supposed to, you know, sit and, and not say anything uh, and watch the story. But I'm like, but if people are engaged in the story and want to know what's happening, what's wrong if they talk back? It's so much fun. It's so much fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you have going on right now? What is, what is, uh, do you have, uh, or, or, oh, you were going to, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to ask you about this, but you, you had a play that was about to um, yeah. <laughs> be performed at the, the oh my gosh, in, yeah. in, at Humana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then COVID happened. Then COVID happened. Uh, it was a week before they, before they canceled the show, I, I started preparing myself for the likelihood that it would be canceled. So when we got the when we got the call that it was canceled, um, I it was it was strange for me because I had already spent the week prior in mourning and deep grief thing, and so when I actually found out that the show was canceled, um, I didn't. I, I I didn't experience the, the the grief that I thought I would likely because I'd already spent the week prior like yeah stressed out and and upset over it. So I'm so sorry about that. But hope I mean it's like but the fact that your play was chosen to be at Humana says a lot, a lot, it, a lot. It, what, what happened was that it wasn't even really a play that was chosen. Um, uh, every year, Actors Theater for Humana, they have, you know, Actors Theater Louisville, they have an apprentice company of uh, 20 young actors who work at the company during the season. And part of their, uh, part of the, one of the big perks of being in the apprentice company is that they get to have their own show in, in the Humana Festival. And so Actors Theater Louisville, they commission uh, every summer, they commission three, three to four playwrights. This year was three, uh, three playwrights to create the Apprentice show. Um, and so, it was basically, this time last year, I remember the date. It was June tenth. I was on the train on my way to work, and I just, I was late, and so I decided to uh, check my emails since I was running late. And there is uh, an email from the literary manager at Actors Theater, uh, Jamie Page White. And initially, just the heading of it, I thought it was one of those like solicitation emails to give money because I've gotten those before. And I was really, really, really close to deleting it. And then something said, no, you should open the email and read it. And so I opened the email and it was an offer from Jenny to, uh, to, or, uh, the email was basically her asking if I'd be interested in uh, receiving a commission to write for The Apprentice Humana Show. It was so completely out of the blue. I was not expecting it. I mean, I had been sending plays to Actors Theater for four or five years, you know, and I always get like a nice rejection, a really, really <laughs> nice rejection letter back. And, um, and so, yeah, it's completely out of the blue. Like, hey, we check to do this. So I was like, of course. But yeah, so. We just have to keep, they're going to happen. We just have to keep I know. You know, faith that it's like, those offers are going to keep coming. When yeah, it's and, time, there's. Yeah, and, and, and that was also something for me that was reaffirming and a message that I have for other playwrights as well is the fact that, yes, I got all of those rejection letters, 
<laughs> it didn't mean that they that they were not interested. You know what I, you know what I'm saying? There was actually interest, and and they remembered my work, and they admired my work, and ultimately it all worked out, right? Um, and and that's what I'm learning is that that's typically how it works. It's not like you write this brilliant play, someone reads it, uh, you write this one brilliant play, someone reads it, first time you send it to their company, and automatically, um, you know. Yeah. It, except for it did happen <laughs> to one of the playwrights in, uh, in the festival this year. Um, oh, okay. Okay, I'm going to sit here now and pitch a play to you on Uptime Drama. Okay. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Can I pitch a play? Yes. Um, yes, I'll do it. There's this play that was in the Humana Festival, uh, and it, did, it, it was in tech. It was in tech when the shutdown happened. So it never even had at least like one or two performances at Humana. Uh, but it's called Flex, and it's by uh, this young... Uh, I hate, I don't want to say young, I hate saying young player, looks like me, but it's by a playwright. Her name is Candace Jones, uh, and she's from Arkansas, but she lives in Minneapolis now. She's, she's uh, a Jerome fellow at the Playwright Center. And so this play is it's so amazing. Um, it is about uh, a high school, you can't get any more specific and detailed than this. It is about an, a girls basketball team in, I think, 1996-1997 at an African-American high school in, in Arkansas, in this small town in Arkansas, and it is it's a, a, it's six um, six actresses, uh, and the play is I don't know what to say without I'm afraid that if I give away something that's not supposed to be um, given away necessarily, but it's about um, this high school uh, girls basketball team, and they are fighting desperately to make it to like the big the big playoffs game um but uh of course there's challenges and what have you and the biggest challenge is uh one of their star players um uh is pregnant and so she can no longer there's a uh but she's like she's like early in her pregnancy so she can maybe still technically play you know what I mean but um, the coach won't let her play and so the the girls on the team uh, uh, band together to help their uh, teammate in ways that I can't quite tell right. you stuff um, and so they band together like the sisterhood to help their teammate but in the course of that there's also all of this stuff that, that kind of unravels about uh, jealousy and rivalries within the team and what have you and attacks were made and alliances that were broken and all this really amazing stuff and it's six african-american actresses and it's so cool and okay. it, can you send it to can you yeah. send it to me jonathan yes, uh, i can i can send like um a message to kendra so she, she can send it to you i think she's repped by uh, Skylar Gray at Gersh. I I'd believe. like to read it. But yeah, it, it's such a cool play. And I, I didn't actually get to read it. I did. I got to listen to here's to Zoom again. Here goes Zoom. Um, the Playwright Center uh, in Minneapolis, they decided to do uh, a, a Zoom reading of it uh, after the production was shut down. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think was particularly uh, cool about this particular Zoom event was just the fact that it was uh, it reunited the playwright and the actresses and the director and the whole crew uh, that were working so hard 
to, to put this show together. And so I say that to say that one of the things that was, that was great about it was that unlike sometimes when it's stuff that's, oh, we have a few days, let's put this thing together on Zoom and what happens, that's kind of sometimes what feels like what's happening. Um, it was lovely to see an actual um, uh, community of artists that had a more substantial history with the piece come together on Zoom to, to revisit it. Uh, but it was fun too to watch because, you know, there's like all these scenes where there's basketball plays and they're playing the game and they're shooting hoops. There's all this stuff happening. And, and they're trying to like, figure out how to do that on Zoom, which is really cool. But it's such a great play. And also, I think I loved it so much because, like, um, I remember when I saw The Wolves, which is also a wonderful, a wonderful play. But um, there was something that I felt like was somewhat of a disconnect to it somehow. Um, but oh, when I uh, uh, when I was listening to or watching the the reading of Flex, I think the thing that really resonated with me and, and uh, struck me the hardest was just the, the conversation uh, about teen pregnancy because like when I was growing up, that was very much like, um, a huge conversation that was had in our neighborhoods and our families and our communities. And, um, and also the conversation that it has about uh, how teen pregnancy, um, how sexuality amongst teens, um, how uh, different that is or how the ramifications of things are so much different based on race and class. You yeah. know I mean? And so yeah. that thing was so moving to me as well. So I just love that fight. It's such a cool fight. And it's basketball. It's going to totally be done in the round. Totally. Hey, you, you don't, like, you, you've done it. I just want to read the script. Let's start casting. Okay. <laughs> um, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. This was such yeah. a pleasure. You're going to have to come back because uh, I feel like we could talk for hours and hours. Yeah, I know. I have so many more questions, but yeah, we got to wrap it up for now, I guess. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you all. all right. And we'll see everybody at the theater. Yeah. Hopefully one day. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.